everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Chillin' in the State House podcast, everyone's favorite Kansas State House podcast, or at least the most chill. My name is Andrew Ball. I am one half of the Topeka Capital Journal's State House team, and I'm joined with by Jason Tidd. Jason, the other half, the better half, how are you doing, sir? Doing quite well. It's the end of our week, but it's probably the start of the week for everybody listening to this, so hope you're ready for a fun one. And we have everything you need to know to get your week started off right. But we wanted a little help. So we go back to our, our old friend, John Hanna of the Associated Press. John, he's just giddy to be on the podcast. Yes. How, how are you? I am. I'm doing fine. Uh, as we record this, uh, tomorrow is Kansas Day, the anniversary of the state's admission to the Union. So are we going to sing Home on the Range? I'm not, because I... You know, somebody once told me, if you can carry a tune, you can sing. Well, I can't carry a tune. So, <laughs> Well, I, I'd say we all have voices for newspapers. <laughs> yeah, that's and, true. And faces for podcasts. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Um, indeed. Happy birthday, Kansas. Uh, a lovely state. It's not my home state. It's my, I guess, not adopted home state. But but Jason, Jason, actually, you're the only one of this podcast who's from Kansas. <laughs> I... Uh, Yay. Give us give us some thoughts on on, yeah. on on Kansas Day. It's a beautiful state. It is. Yeah. Kansas protecting the world from Missouri since 1854. And this is how we get more listens by dumping by dumping on Missouri. <laughs> I would say Missouri's a fine fine state. If you like soybean fields. Um you see I Protecting us from Missouri, just like uh protecting Lawrence from the Quanchol Raiders or the what some people might say is a bigger raid on Lawrence these days. That was an excellent transition. It's yes. almost like we scripted it. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> wait, we don't script this podcast? You're telling people out there that we do not meticulously plan every week and that we don't just cobble this together on Friday afternoons? Uh, you, you, you mean we knew what we were going to do a podcast about before an hour ago? <laughs> Presented without comment, uh, we plead the fifth. But yes, as Jason alluded to, big news in the Kansas State House this week: uh, congressional maps, Republican-authored congressional maps, moved through very quickly indeed, and are now on Governor Laura Kelly's desk, awaiting final action. Uh, John, I'm going to start with you. Why don't you walk folks through what those maps look like? Because you have. Well, I guess the hand motions won't really carry over into podcast form. But. No, it, it doesn't. I, I would say, as as uh, my mentor used to say, they jumped on redistricting faster than a chicken on a June bug. Um, One of my favorite Kansas cliches. Yes, that's very fast, folks. Um, so let's talk about maps. Um, there are two really big features of this map that have, uh, it's called Ad Astra 2, because there was a slightly different Ad Astra one. And Ad Astra, of course, is the state's part of the, the state's first, motto. The first half to the stars. They left off the two di- through difficulties part. <laughs> Which is perhaps a metaphor. Yes. Well, anyway, the, the first big key feature of this map is that it splits the northern half of Wyandotte County in the Kansas City area and pulls it from the 3rd District, which is represented by Democrat Cherise Davids, the only Democrat in the state's congressional delegation, takes that territory and puts it into the 2nd District. The significance of that 
for her in the third is that is her best territory. She won it by about two to one in 2020. And to kind of balance up the population, they gave her all of Miami, Anderson, and Franklin counties. Conservative, very conservative. Conservative counties, counties where, judging roughly by the results in the slim chunk of Miami County that's currently in the district, she might lose those counties two to one. She kept all of Johnson County in the district. She won that. I think in 2020 by about four or five points. Um, so they're taking away part of her best territory and giving her territory that's not particularly terrific for her. And then the other uh, much commented upon uh, feature of the, that map was the uh, merger of the uh, reputed vegan paradise of Lawrence with uh, the cattle ranches and cattle feedlots of western Kansas. And that's that's what Jason was alluding to in terms of, of raids. Uh, uh, a very, very nice turn you of know, phrase. Aging, you know, aging hippies with probably a few people who busted their heads during the 60s. <laughs> um, I, I was walking around the Statehouse Rotunda as somebody was doing a tour and they were pointing out the Quantrill raid mural and I was like... Uh, Boy, the uh, folks uh, at uh, Lawrence sure feel like it's been reenacted, some of them, don't they? Um, And that first district, of course, had to grow, and so it sort of kind of slides across a tier of counties into northeast Kansas, and it goes over, and before it hits the Missouri border, just kind of there's a little nub at the, at the, the end, and that's Lawrence separated from the rest of Douglas County. Well, and Jason, we were talking about this. I mean, the interesting thing is that this map pairs the University of Kansas and Kansas State in one district. And the only other state in the country to have multiple congressional districts and do that is Oregon. You're a K-Stater. So you have kind of a a bit of an idea of some of the dynamics at play. But but talk us through what that means, because that's, I mean, a, a bit of a... It's kind of hard to wrap your... Well, it's not hard to wrap your head around because it's happened before, but uh, in the big first, it's a little different. Well, well, so some people could argue that you now have one representative to represent college students. You have University of Kansas, Kansas State University, Fort Hayes State, and that is one community of, I don't know, what, 45,000-ish people? Uh, you're now representing them, and you get to be the higher education representative. But as we've also heard, universities might prefer to have one person to represent their interests. So K-State might want to have somebody who knows agriculture in western Kansas and can represent K-State's interests on a federal level. While KU might want somebody who has more of a background with issues affecting Lawrence and research at a medical university or a university with a medical school and can represent their interests in D.C. And while KU and K-State might have overlapping interests in some areas, there's definitely fields of expertise and politics that you might want different congresspeople to represent. Well, and and Jason, what is really interesting about this debate is that in 2012, 10 years ago, uh, Manhattan, 
uh, and Kansas State was in the second district, and the first district had to grow, and it was very, very difficult for lawmakers to do a map that kept um, Manhattan and Kansas State out of the first district. You got some interesting variations, and eventually when the federal court, the three judges drew the lines, they put Manhattan in the first district. We should say legislators actually did not draw the, the maps 10 years ago. No. It was left up to the, the, the federal panel, basically after legislators could not decide amongst themselves what they wanted to well, do. Well, and, and that's, that is actually one of the key differences now, as opposed to 10 years ago. Republicans, for the moment, appear to be much, much more united. Um, we, we will see how long that lasts when they get to the legislative redistricting. Ten years ago, there was a bitter, bitter fight between conservative and moderate Republicans over the Senate maps. Basically, you had some House conservatives who wanted to run against moderate senators, the House map, and this broke a tradition of the House never interfering with Senate maps. They drew the Senate districts so that those folks could challenge those incumbents. The Senate drew the districts so that they were not in the same districts. They were drawn out. So nothing passed. Everything was held hostage in terms of redistricting, and lawsuit was filed because the districts were malapportioned, and then the judges drew the lines, and that's the way they drew the lines. And Well, and I think we're kind of starting to get maybe a little bit into the debate over the maps, and um, Republicans argue basically that they did, that this was a map problem, that the current third district, represented by Sharice Davids, uh, was too big. It was bigger than the ideal population. Even Johnson County and Wyandotte County, which are the core of that district combined, have more people mm-hmm. than the ideal population. You couldn't keep them together. So you had to divide one of them up. And what Republicans say is, we started with Johnson County as the core of that district and built out from there. And that means you have to divide Wyandotte. And they're saying they picked a logical way of doing that. They divided Wyandotte County Half of Wyandotte County is in the third, and that's the part mostly below Interstate 70. So if you've ever driven the Kansas Turnpike towards Missouri, towards Kansas City, Missouri, the stuff on your right (laughs) is more or less the third district, and the stuff on your left is more or less the second district. Doesn't follow exactly, but... But but people out there, way to visualize a little bit of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, before the 1980s, from the maps I've seen, Wyandotte County was at one point divided and by the way so was wichita um and and that changed they but yeah you're right there's too many people in johnson and wyandotte counties the ideal figure is 734,470 people so you're going to have to shave something off and you know democrats had maps that shaved off kind of um western and southern Johnson County, the um, the less suburban areas in like theory. Like Gardner Edgerton. Gardner Edgerton, Spring Hill, uh, Stillwell probably. Those those kind of areas that are in a Johnson County sense rural, meaning there's not a strip mall every 10 feet. <laughs> well, and, um, and in some sense there are characteristics of those areas that share more in common with exurban parts of Douglas County or even Shawnee County than Overland Park. 
you know, Johnson County Republicans, however, made the argument that they still feel like they're part of the KC Metro. And heck, with the way urban sprawl is occurring in the KC Metro area, Gardner in 10 years could look very different well, than it and, does and, now. And you have to, you the, the where a lot of the population growth in, in Johnson County is in the southern, southwestern part of the county, because that's where that's where you can pack in new housing developments. Um, even before this census, Gardner, for example, was very, very fast growing. And, and so you could, you could argue that, you know, you're just, if you do that, you're going to, you're going to separate a place that is going to be suburban from a place that is already suburban. The, the issue that's going to be argued in court, I think, is how much different are the parts of Kansas City, Kansas, north of I-70 from the parts of Kansas City, Kansas that are south of I-70? Well, and Democrats, Jason, are arguing that they Republicans and how they divide Wyandotte County hurt, shall we say, minority voters, right? Yeah, I and I... I was looking at the data at one point, and right now the third congressional district is more diverse than other congressional districts in the state. And less white, maybe, is the, th- the way to put it. Yes, less white, and, non-Hispanic. Yeah, and and Good when point, you thanks. with the new lines, the third congressional district would become more white than it is now. Well. And and the the debate is over the the third district was is not a majority minority district like for example you you get districts in the south that are majority black residents and that kicks in protections under the under the Voting Rights Act of yes. 1964 and and the other the counter argument to that dilution of minority voting power that the Democrats allege is that over here in the second district, the act, the percentage of minority voters actually goes up under this map. So, you know, Ethan Corson, uh, the democratic Senator from fairway said, well, you can't say that it's all right to do this harm over here because we made it a little better over here. I, you know, it will be interesting to see how, if, this map gets enacted into law, Governor Kelly vetoes it, they override her veto, or some, she lets it become law without her signature, or uh, nobody is suggesting this, but she signs it. If it becomes law, it will be interesting to see how the federal judges handle that argument. Or state judges. I mean, there there are talks that potentially these maps could be challenged in state courts under the guidelines that legislators themselves approve Basically to say, these are our, our goals, our guiding, our North Stars as we draft the maps. And there's some thought that because in federal court, it's become a lot harder to challenge maps for partisan gerrymandering. Yeah. And even in some cases for racial gerrymandering. So maybe the state court, the state Supreme Court, is majority justices appointed by Democratic governors. Maybe there's an option there. Well, but, but and I understand that Democrats are thinking about that, but they haven't quite... Um, it's, it's never been done before. It's, at least not in, since I've been here. Um, I can't vouch for, you know, the 1870s. <laughs> but um, they haven't quite explained how that would work. 
and you would undoubtedly burn a couple of, I, I don't know, at least a couple of days anyway, in a debate over whether this state court lawsuit belonged there or in federal court. I'm sure you'd get that sometimes happens when you get one of these these you'd have to show that no we're only asking for questions to be settled under the state constitution and therefore the kansas supreme court is the only competent court of jurisdiction as the lawyers like to say but it's safe to say this is headed for a legal challenge on oh, yes. some level or multiple levels maybe which means that lawyers will make money taxpayers will lose money and we will get page views. <laughs> well, and and the last time in 2012, I mean, there were there were several dozen lawyers in involved. Um, I mean, I think there were two dozen parties or groups of parties that were pulled into the lawsuit, and they all had at least it seemed like at least two attorneys at the time. I mean, you know, and. Um, well, Mark Elias, who's a, a nationally prominent, nationally renowned voting rights, election rights attorney, has said that he's basically hinted on Twitter that he's going to file a lawsuit. Well, somebody is. Look, whatever happens, if this map doesn't get enacted into law and the next one does, there will be a lawsuit from somebody on that. If no map gets passed, there'll be a rush to the courthouse because the districts are then malapportioned, and that's just not permissible under U.S. Supreme Court one-man-one-vote decisions, one-person, one-vote decisions. And as we're talking about lawsuits being inevitable, Republicans have kind of made that argument to try to, I guess, say that this is a fair map. It's Democrats would have threatened to sue regardless of how they drew the districts or at least that's the argument and and they've they've shied away from offering any explanation about the lines that borders on yeah we wanted to draw for republican districts they have stayed away from that this is just a math problem the fact that it likely makes it harder for sharice davids to win re-election you know their argument is oh she still can if you look at the numbers from 2020 of course 2022 is going to be a vastly different election but the the fact that they shy away from it is that this there's still some taint associated with the party in power doing something to draw the lines in its favor although in kansas and many other states that's the way it's worked for here probably 150 plus years and you know you look at the districts in illinois and you look at the districts around chicago and they're these creatively snaky districts and they all favor democrats um Andrew, you're from Maryland. and Yeah, there's and a district that crosses the Chesapeake Bay <laughs> in a questionable way, I think it's safe to say. Well, and, and in North Carolina, where Republicans hold sway, there's the first district of eastern North Carolina that if the uh, sea levels rise too much from climate change and take out the coastal islands, you got a district in two pieces because those islands keep, a, keep that district together. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and and there are lots of comments on you know does the first new first district does it look like an elephant does it look like a salamander what is that kind of noodly appendage stuff going on in the second it looks like the the balloon thing that's outside car dealerships (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know if anybody watched uh, that. That's too many words. The balloon thing outside car dealerships. <laughs> but it's good. That's good. I, I thought Flying Spaghetti Monster. But... <laughs> well, maybe with the way the map is trying to be sold, a used car dealership would be more appropriate. Oh, oh. Oh, I think Republicans would take issue with that, Jason. Well, they, that maybe that metaphor will find its way into a court document. Lawyers out there, like voting yeah, rights attorneys. Lawyers, <laughs> if there are lawyers listening, probably one of them will adopt that. Well, and, and let's really quickly be clear. The mats were sent to Governor Laura Kelly yesterday, Thursday, January 27th. She has 10 days to decide what to do with them. And uh, we don't know what she's going to do. Uh, the prevailing assumption has been that she will veto them. Republicans were preparing for that. Um, they should. The Republicans should have enough votes to override a veto yes. in the Kansas Senate. They had one Republican vote no, um, but if two members who were absent, who were widely expected to vote support the maps, vote yes, they'll be fine. The Kansas House is a trickier, tr- a trickier proposition, and that's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, a Republican in that chamber voted no as well. You need 84 votes to override a veto. So they're already down one. Two members voted present, uh, both of whom are critical at times of Republican leadership, or at least one of them is, uh, Representative Trevor Jacobs, a Republican of Fort Scott. And there were four Republicans who were out for a variety of issues, potentially including COVID-19. We don't want to speculate on air, but that will complicate things too because uh, they will need all of their members there and lined up behind this bill if they want to override a veto. There's not I, much margin for error. I should say Ron Reichman sounds fairly confident. He does. It's true. Um, and I don't think that he would, you know, I mean, they're pretty good about hemming and hauling if they're uncertain. And I don't think he would come out and say, I have the votes on an override unless he did, because that would look bad if it blows up in your face. But stranger things have happened. Oh, yeah, much stranger things have happened. Um, it's it's not very strange to have somebody predict an override and fall one vote short. But again, Speaker Ron Reichman, the Speaker of the House, this week was very confident they'd get to 84, 85, or even 86, that they could get every Republican aboard. But, you know, when it's... If there is a veto, we'd probably find out fairly quickly. It would depend on everybody being there. And so the irony is, if Omicron continues, I think you have 30 days to try to override a veto. If Omicron continues for another six weeks, that could really throw a monkey wrench into everything. Well, I was thinking that the governor has 10 days. She could take longer to decide whether or not to sign the bill than it took Republicans to push it through the legislature. Yeah, they really uh, they really acted very quickly. Their argument was, um, we need to get this through, get any legal challenges settled uh, in 2012. Uh, this was not settled until, I, if I'm remembering correctly, late May. And the filing deadline was pushed back a week. And uh, it filing, the last day of filing was utter chaos at the Secretary of State's office. It was just a wonderful circus of people coming in and not quite understanding what district they needed to file in people who'd filed in one place having to file in another you know you had some uh, you had many several dozen districts with two incumbents in them in in the house and the senate 
And you uh, also had a couple of House districts with three incumbents in the same district. I lived in one of those districts. Yes, Iowa. Uh, yes, Bill Otto was my representative growing up until he wasn't because he was in a district that had three incumbents. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should say... Despite as complicated as this all sounds, congressional maps are the easy ones. Yeah, exactly. And we have not touched the legislative maps yet, which are, I think, maybe from the general public's point of view, less interesting. But if you like soap operas, or if you like, uh, you know, if, if you like uh, Renaissance Italian dramas, you would like uh, legislative redistricting. I mean, it. It the the difference is. In congressional redistricting, there's an overlay of politics in terms of helping your party in Congress, maybe helping it win back a House majority. You know, you've got these members of Congress who like or don't like what you're doing and will let you know. The difference is with legislative redistricting, it's much more personal. You know what precincts you're gaining and losing. You know what they're like. You know the territory. Um, And... You you might already know who's thinking of running against you in the primary or the general election. Uh, incumbents are very well aware of how close they live to each other. Um, and there are some places where they live relatively close, and it would be very easy to draw lines to put two, say, Democratic incumbents in the same district. And so that's, yeah, it's a whole extra layer of stuff. <laughs> be fun as a native rural kansan i i just i a lot of the redistricting debate for congressional maps has been around you know kansas city metro and lawrence and i i wonder what it's like for you know a western kansan who now has the chance of being represented by a lawrence republican or as a southeast kansan you could be represented by from somebody from kansas city or my family farm, if you drew, drive three miles north, you are now in Anderson County around Leroy, and you can be represented by somebody from Johnson County. Well, yes. And, you know, discussing with people from western Kansas, there's this tone of, well, you know, we don't like being left behind in representation and losing representation. I mean, but that's one person, one vote. I mean, in the old, old, old before my time days, every county in Kansas had a state rep, and then they distributed the remaining 20 amongst the most populous counties. And, you know, Senate districts were drawn roughly similar on that kind of idea. And, of course, it was hideously malapportioned toward rural areas. And, uh, I mean, completely totally unfair to the urban areas. Morden County has basically the same representation as, you know, Johnson County in many sense. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, that's that's a wild idea from a 21st century political perspective. It it is a wild idea from a post 1960s perspective of everybody's vote counting the same. But the idea that that geography that's more sparsely populated deserves more representation in the legislature has not died. 
um, you know, we we talked to the chairman of the Ellis County Republican Party, and he said basically, as long as they've done the math right and it works out, and I never have to worry about being represented by a Democrat in the first congressional district, we're fine with it. Um, <laughs> so well, because I mean, at the end of the day, Tracy Mann is still going to be more uh, engaged, I think, with the farming communities, the agriculture communities. He will presumably still have a seat on the House Agriculture Committee. Uh, that's still a very safe Republican seat. And so, I mean, he's also a K-Stater, just like Jason. Yeah. But, but who knows, what, will he still show up in Lawrence for a town hall? It's a quite a bit of a drive from the rest of his district to get there. Well, and, and when uh, in, after 2012, when Tim Hewell's camp was the conservative congressman out in the first district, he would hold town halls in Manhattan and Emporia, and those were the ones where he always got the most grief. Um, and yeah, I mean, the interesting thing, though, is Lawrence, the Lawrence, Lawrence and the Manhattan area, sort of that eastern side in, in Pottawatomie County over there, they're growing. Uh, there are some areas in western Kansas that are growing, but there are a lot of areas in western Kansas that are losing population. So if you put Lawrence in that district, 95,000 people, it's the biggest city in the first district. And it's not particularly close. Yeah. I mean, now, I guess with Manhattan. It, I mean, it's still depending double the on, population of Manhattan. Yeah. Well, and, and, and also, you know, Hutchison, all of them. You know, you could foresee if that becomes sort of a permanent feature of the map, you could foresee a scenario 20, 30 years from now when the representative is from Lawrence, because that's the biggest that area in Manhattan together dominate the district's politics. Well, and we also don't know what's going to happen with um, Hispanic or minority voting communities in Southwest Kansas. It's well, and it's that's not, also it's another argument for yet. putting Lawrence with that the Republicans made for putting Lawrence with. Uh, Western Kansas is that you have Dodge City, Garden City, City, liberal, liberal, you know, uh, you have all those communities which are diverse. So if you want to talk about diversity, those are actually some of the most diverse places in the state. It is interesting that by Kansas standards, Dodge City is considered liberal. What 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 happens when we get to the point where liberal is considered liberal? Well, you know that you know what the apocryphal story is about liberal, right? That some guy was traveling across that country in summer and uh, dying of thirst, and he manages to make it to a farm and asks the farmer if he can have a drink of water from his well, and the farmer says yes for ten dollars, and he looks at him and says, "Mighty liberal of you." That's the legend. That's a story that I'm going to choose to believe because it's fun. Yes. You know what else is fun? CJOnline.com and all of the Topeka Capital Journal's statehouse content. Right, Jason? Yes. And Twitter.com. And Twitter.com. Yes. You can follow us on Twitter at CJOnline. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us there. Uh, but Jason, where can readers find you tweeting about your excellent work? On Twitter, you can find me at Jason underscore Tid. I am at Andrew Ball, B-A-H-L. And John, if they want a refreshingly different perspective from the Associated Press, where can they find you? Well, I'm on Twitter at A-P-J-D-Hannah, D as in David, my middle name. And then, of course, there's 
www.apnews backslash. We're doing the hand motions, Kansas. People can go surf the information superhighway and find you. Yes. Or they can watch the YouTube live streams and maybe catch a glimpse of us in the background of a of a committee hearing. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, especially if I'm wearing a wet red sweater vest that day. <laughs> love those red sweater vests. It's a good look for you. Um, if you love this podcast, John loves the podcast. Yes. I think John loves, might love the podcast more than Jason or I. <laughs> um, uh, no, that's, the, that's not true. The podcast is like a child to me, in part because I don't have any actual children. Uh, the podcast lives on anywhere fine podcasts are found. Spotify, Google Play. Apple Podcasts, or if you're just not feeling like going to any of those, if like Neil Young, you don't want to deal with Spotify, you can go to cjonline.com and we post new episodes there every Monday. You can keep on rocking in the free world, right? I think that's a good way to go through. Search for that heart of gold. If you're a crazy horse out there who listens to Chilling in the State House, we appreciate you very much. Jason, John. Thank you for coming on, as always. I there, There's nothing I'd rather be doing on a Friday afternoon before going home. Oh, I think that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. We appreciate you all listening. Go check us out. But before that, have a great week.